0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. Our guest this episode is Catherine S. Newman, and our topic, her new book, The Accordion Family, Boomerang Kids, Anxious Parents, and the Private Toll of Global Competition. In the world's wealthiest countries, an increasing number of adults in their 20s and 30s are moving back in with mom and dad. What's driving this trend and what are the consequences? Listen in to find out. Thanks, Professor Newman, for being on the podcast with us today. Today, we'll be talking about your new book, The Accordion Family Boomerang Kids, Anxious Parents, and the Private Toll of Global Competition. So, first things first, can you tell us what is an Accordion Family? An accordion family is a multi-generational household with working adults and their adult children. And in the book title, you also refer to boomerang kids. So can you give us the quick uh, definition of boomerang kids?
1: In the United States, the tendency in the middle class is for young people to go away to college and then to return home when that's done uh, and become part of an accordion family. In other countries, they just never leave. They stay home all the way through their schooling um, and remain part of that accordion from the very beginning. So a boomerang is a someone who's returning home after a period apart, which is the more um, common experience in the middle and upper middle class in the U.S.
0: Sure. And you refer to the U.S. and trends in the other countries. Can you um, just lay out for our listeners which countries you cover in the book? Yes, there's six countries in this project. Um, there were three Western European countries, Italy, Spain,
1: um, actually four, I should say, Italy, Spain, Denmark, and Sweden. And then Japan was a fifth country, and the U.S. was a sixth. Great. So the way they were divided up is that I was looking at three countries that have an extremely pronounced pattern of accordion families, and that's Japan, Spain, and Italy. Um, Two countries that have virtually no evidence of accordion families, and those are the Nordic states of Denmark and Sweden, and then the United States that's sort of in the middle.
2: So this book draws on hundreds of interviews with parents and adult children in these countries. We are just shocked by that and how you were able to coordinate such a large-scale qualitative project. Can you touch on that a little bit and talk to our Listeners sure. of sure. it of was them. a very
1: interesting experience in um, comparative qualitative work, which, as you note, is unusual, and that's because logistically it's hard to do. But I formed a research team out of mostly out of the European University Institute in Fiesole in Italy. Near Florence. This is the university that serves the European Union, and as a result, graduate students come there from all over Europe. And through colleagues of mine there, I was able to find graduate students, or recent, actually, most of them were recent PhDs who'd just gotten their degrees there um, from um, Italy, from Spain, from, um, uh, let's see, and from Sweden. And then in Denmark, I went through a contact I had with a political science colleague. In Japan, I was using a graduate student I knew at the City University of New York, who was Japanese, um, and so I basically recruited a an international team of interviewers, researchers, and we spent several weeks together at the European University, sort of going over all of the details of the project and forming and reforming the major questionnaire instrument, which was in and of itself a very interesting process, because the questions were originally formulated in English, and we realized, of course, there were many nuances that required a lot of reformation of the research instrument to be sure that they were culturally compatible. Um, And it turned out that there were very distinctive customs of question format that had to be adapted. So, for example, my Japanese interviewer realized that In Japan, it would be awkward to ask people something that we routinely do in U.S. social science. So we often ask people, what do you think about this problem? But in Japan, it's regarded as too aggressive to say, what do you think? You have to ask, what do people think? Mm -hmm. And when you ask, what do people think? You will get something close to what that interviewee believes but if you directly said, what do you think, it would be just feel too jarring. So there are enormous cultural sensitivities that had to be woven into the basic research format where we knew what what concept we were trying to get at, but it had to be reformulated by native speakers. So I think the most important methodological decision I made was to be sure that all of my interviewers were native speakers with extensive experience studying their own cultures who nonetheless understood through our common work together what it was I was trying to learn from each country.
2: How long did the project take?
1: Well, it took about 18 months in Western Europe and another nine months in Japan, and then I added, actually, the American part. I didn't originally intend to do a U.S. piece, but then... I realized that it was important for my audience to understand that the United States was caught in many of the same trends and complexities. And then I had to set about thinking, how do you find accordion families uh, in the U.S.? And I discovered that in in Massachusetts, which is where I did that part of the research, they have a unique history of doing an annual household census. There is a mandatory annual household census in the state of Massachusetts. And it's publicly available for every town in the Commonwealth. And what you get from that annual household census are the names of the people in the household, their ages and their occupations. And that enables you to look at a household and see that you have people with the same last name who are, you know, in their late 50s, early 60s, and someone else with that same last name who's in their late 20s. And you can pretty well be sure that's not a married couple And you can begin to discern the the possibilities of an accordion family in those households from the information you get. Massachusetts is the only uh, state that I know that does this, and that's why I chose to go there for the American part.
2: And what about the other countries? I mean, this might get edited out just because this is more of a researcher question (laughs) that we're interested in, but, you know, how do you go about finding accordion families in other countries?
1: Well, this is this is complicated. and um, it, it did require a kind of snowball sample. So what I did was ask my researchers to start off with people that they didn't know well, but they knew enough to get started. That is, it, it couldn't be anyone who was a personal friend or even a friend of a friend, but it had to be sort of three degrees outside their own friendship circles. And then to snowball from there, and I told them that I wanted them never to use more than one um, lead from any given contact and that I needed them to be sure that they weren't just in the capital cities. They needed to fan out and go to different regions of the country. So they used their personal networks to find people all over. In Italy, for example, the, the Italian sample goes all the way from the most rural and poor regions of Southern Italy in the, in the boot heel, so to speak, all the way up to the Northern industrial parts of, of Italy. Um, and so that I was really working through personal networks, friends of friends, extended ties, um, any way that we could figure it. Uh, but we wanted to be sure these were not people that, that were personal friends of my interviewers. Cause first of all, you, even if you weren't concerned about how that might contaminate the interview, The the subjects that we covered are so sensitive that I didn't believe anyone who thought there could be repercussions from a personal relationship would agree to do such an interview, and so that's how we did it.
0: So you said this project started out with the international component, with the European piece first, and I just thought it would be interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit, since you know you're often talked about as I'm an expert on poverty and the working poor, and your work has been focused on the U.S. What drew you to this project that looks more middle class affluent families and is more global in scope? Yes, well, I've actually written quite a bit about the American
1: middle class as well. So before I was working on the literature and poverty, and that. Uh, many sociologists know now. The first book I wrote that got a lot of public attention is called Falling from Grace, and that's about middle-class families that have fallen out of the class structure during the early 1980s when we had the last big, huge economic downturn, much like the one we're experiencing now. I wrote two books in a row that were on that topic, on downward mobility. So I'd actually done a fair amount of research on the American middle class But it's true that I had not done much that was international. And so to some degree, this was an accident. When I was at Harvard, I was running, I I was responsible for a National Science Foundation IGERT grant on inequality, and I had developed it first to study uh, domestic inequality. But when I went to renew that grant in its second set of five-year support periods from NSF, I realized I needed to add something to the project because NSF doesn't support anything permanently. So you have to add something new, but it has to be something that doesn't detract from the focus of what you've built already through the training grant. So I thought, well, what I really need to do is take this program on, on inequality that's focused on domestic issues and add an international component. And so I began developing what at Harvard was called the European Network on Inequality, with the help of my colleagues who were comparativists, especially in political science. So I started traveling around Europe to contact research units that I thought could be part of this network all over Europe. I, I made six trips to Europe in, in about six months to talk to people who were leading institutes that and university uh, departments that later became parts of this European Network on Inequality. And it was during that trip that I became aware of how enormously prevalent this accordion family phenomenon was because I was talking to people roughly my own age in Spain and Italy and other places about their families because at the end of the day when you're done with work and you're just going out to dinner you're just chatting about things that are sort of personal and catching up with people learning more about their lives and I suddenly realized these people had had young daughters and sons at home who were, who were 35 and I'm thinking wow that's really unusual I would never be comfortable about that if that was my family? What's going on here? And by the time I finished the work of building the European network, I came home and realized there was a research project here. And I started checking in with my friends in demography and realizing that there was already a demographic literature on low fertility that was linked to this accordion family question, or at least I thought it was linked to it. Um, And that's how the research was born. It was really just born out of an opportunity to travel all over Europe for another purpose, and then realizing there was a research project there of some importance. Hmm.
0: So we were wondering, within the book itself, can you talk a little bit about how these accordion families are redefining adulthood for their young adult members, and how those ideas are different in the U.S. and in Europe?
1: Yes, well, if 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 people are having to stay home until they're verging on 30 or older in some of these countries, and they're not married, and they're not fully employed or comfortably secure in their economic independence, almost by definition, then what does it mean to be that age and have none of the markers that in the past would have defined adulthood? Nobody looks at those young people and says they haven't grown up beyond the age of 15. No one looks at them and says they're like adolescents. But they're not completely independent either, so what are they? And this is a question that is being asked in millions of households all over Western Europe. So what has developed out of this, I argue, is a kind of way station in between, I labeled it in-house adulthood. It means that they are definitely older, definitely more responsible for themselves than they were when they were teenagers, but clearly not fully launched. And so this becomes a, a sort of psychological state rather than a state marked by all of these landmarks of independence that... We used to recognize and that the older generation still sees as essential to adulthood. Completing your education, finding full-time work, forming your own household, beginning your own family. These are the characteristics that defined adulthood in earlier generations, and it's just not happening in the same way for the generation coming of age now, but they're not teenagers anymore. So it's an adaptation, a normative adaptation that is developing that tries to take account of this more tortured pathway toward adulthood, which takes longer. It has fewer way stations that we all recognize. It's more psychological, but it's certainly there. Something's there. It's just not the same thing. And that I found to be characteristic in the U.S. in particular, and in Europe and Japan as well. What differed between these countries was not that. That was pretty common. It was assigning blame or not for this condition. That's what really differed between the countries. In Spain, there was a very strong sense that this is a social problem. It is a consequence of actions taken by power elites to destroy the labor market opportunities of the young generation, to accommodate the pressures of international globalization, by creating very weak labor contracts that didn't exist in the earlier generations, that created a landscape of a cratered landscape of economic development for this rising generation from which it has not recovered. In Italy, you don't see any of that kind of politicized anger. You don't have a diagnosis that is macroeconomic. You have acceptance of the accordion family and really very little recognition among ordinary people that it's an issue. The government, however, has a completely different attitude. The government in Italy is tearing its hair out over this problem. He even tried to pass a bill making it illegal to live at home after the age of 18, which failed miserably because the person who proposed it had lived at home till he was 30. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the government is worried because, like all governments, it's very difficult to float a social security system you know, with such an anemic labor base at the bottom. The country's getting older. Fertility is dropping. Italy is not a country that has been particularly welcoming to immigrants, which is how countries like ours have solved the population problem. So they're getting older, and older societies are expensive because they require a lot of benefits to support the retirees and not enough workers who who are able to do that. So you get a very different interpretation in Italy, than you do in Spain, and yet again, a different interpretation
2: in Japan for exactly the same demographic phenomenon. I really thought that was interesting that these countries that see the perceived threat of immigration and are really anti-immigration, but like in the U.S., ironically, immigrant fertility is the only thing keeping the country's population at replacement level. So can you talk a bit more about that, maybe comparing the United States and European countries to what's going on in Japan?
1: Yes, so Japan has had
2: very very low
1: rates of immigration for most of its history and not a particularly welcoming view of of immigrants. The the immigrant population in Japan such as it is is largely Korean that came about from the fallout of previous world wars and Japanese occupation of Korea. And so there's a tense relationship between Korea and Japan because of this history, and the Korean minority in Japan has had its problems in social acceptance. So Japan has had a very, um, a very negative attitude on the, on the whole about immigration, and as a result, it's relatively new to the immigration game and relatively low, which means that there's no way to cure the fertility problem in Japan through immigration. In the U.S., we have waxed and waned in our attitudes toward immigration, we sometimes are very anti-immigrant, and in economic downturns, immigration slows anyway. But relative to these other countries, we are way more open and have a much larger foreign-born population than any of the rest of them. And that's one of the reasons why we don't have a fertility problem. Uh, if you just looked at the American middle and upper middle class, and native-born American middle class, it too has been shrinking in terms of fertility. Um, but we have such a large immigrant population that tends at least for one or two generations to have more children than the norm that we are protected from overall low fertility that won 't be true in a while if we shut the immigrant door, we will start to see the same problem in the u s because after a couple of generations, immigrant families are are no different from any others so but in general, I would say the American culture has been better protected from the ravages of economic slowdown, and all the other forces leading to accordion families, because we do have a a robust immigrant population. But that's really not true in Western Europe, and is definitely not true in Japan.
2: So I'm interested that the immigration piece wasn't the central focus of your book, but I'm wondering, has there been any response to this idea that the immigrants are really the only reason we're not turning into a, a situation like Japan? Well, the book, it hasn't been translated yet
1: into European languages. I'm starting to get some interest in that now, and so it may become better known. I just did an interview this morning with um, a a London-based reporter who's reporting on Spain. There was a a big article in El Mundo, which is one of the main Spanish newspapers about the book, just like two weeks ago. So it's starting to filter out into the European world, uh, I know that there's a Japanese publisher who wants to publish a translation. It takes a while for a new book in the U.S. to, you know, to become widely available, such that it would be discussed at the same level in in Europe or Japan. But I'm hoping that it will be, because I think the work would be of interest to readers in those countries. But I, I don't know whether they would accept this diagnosis. I have to tell you that I didn't expect to be writing about immigration in this book at all. It never occurred to me It's just that it kept coming up as a constant refrain in the interviews because when people talked about what worried them, they recognized that low fertility was leading to a smaller population of native-born Spaniards or native-born Japanese. And when they asked, well, who is having children in this country, they were pointing to immigrants and then worrying about what it meant for the cultural dominance of the native-born and a lot of nativist kind of sentiments about what high fertility among immigrants would mean for these cultures over time if there were very few native-born families replicating themselves. It just never occurred to me that this was going to be an issue. It just kept coming up in every interview, and I finally decided this has to be in the book. It's just too persistent a refrain.
2: Another thing that we found interesting was there's this plus side to having adult children in the home that Mm -hmm. is surprising maybe just coming from an American perspective the idea of going home and living with parents seems maybe a bit shameful or you know something that you wouldn't want and and that certainly mm-hmm. maybe your parents wouldn't want you to do either. So there's this plus side that a lot of middle-class parents talk about. Yes so it's not nearly as problematic as one might have
1: expected or as would have been true in earlier generations and I think there's a number of reasons So first of all, when we look at what the generation who are parents right now, the baby boomer generation, what its own social experience was, we can begin to understand why it's not as problematic to have their children come home as it would have been for those boomers to go home when they were 18 or 20 or 25. The boomers were a generation that broke a lot of social rules themselves. So they're not, as a whole, all that persnickety about sexual behavior for their children. They've had such an outsized influence over the culture that often their children are listening to the same music they listen to. So the Rolling Stones are still very popular. I was just hearing the other day that the Beach Boys are about to re-release a whole new album that is being widely anticipated. I didn't listen to Frank Sinatra when I was a kid. I didn't care about the music my parents listened to. There was a huge cultural divide there between the generation that came of age during the Second World War and their boomer children. But I would argue there actually isn't a huge culture gap between boomers and their children. They listen to similar music. They have similar tastes in film. Obama's election turned partly on a young generation turning to its baby boomer parents and saying, you should look at this guy. We think he's great. So there's lots of ways in which the cultural gap between these generations is nowhere near as wide as might have been true in earlier generations. The second point I would make is that if you think about what boomer parents went through in raising their kids, they were the generation of dual-career families. So they worked all the way through their children's youth and babyhood often. By the time those kids reached 18, those parents were not tired of them. They had not spent as much time together as was true in earlier generations of stay-at-home mothers. So uh, they actually miss their children when they leave because they've been divided between work life and family life in ways that earlier generations weren't. So when the kids come home, there's a lot of pleasure in welcoming them again. And, of course, they come home in a form that's very different from the form that left. No longer are the parents hovering over their kids saying, did you get your homework done or worrying about getting them into college or thinking about where they are at midnight. They come back in an older form that doesn't require surveillance very much that isn't really a child at all. So they subtract the worst aspects of parenting, the part that has to do with surveillance and social control, and retain most of the positive aspects, enjoyment, friendship, more cultural commonalities, and so in many ways, the parenting experience for, with a boomerang child is completely different from the parenting experience of a teenager. Yes,
2: yeah, so you make an important point in the book that I think is important to bring up, especially for our listeners, about how class affects the accordion family, um, mm-hmm. so more affluent families are able to use their means to get their children out of the house, whereas lower income families don't necessarily have that choice. Can you talk a little bit about how this plays out in real families that you spoke to?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like most phenomenon in in the U.S., class is a huge driver in how it unfolds. So, as you noted, the, the wealthiest families could set their children up and help them financially. So they might be residentially independent, but they're not financially independent. That's because they're coming from households that are so wealthy that they can make that possible. When you look at the middle class, you see less capacity to do that. So the kids are likely to come home in order to avoid further debt, especially if they need master's degrees or internships or any of the other many ways we are imposing on young people the demand for them to be more experienced and have more human capital if they're going to launch into a professional track. So middle-class families, in order to make that possible for their kids, are having to shelter the expense of becoming more experienced or more educated by keeping them inside the household and paying only one rent. And that is how they're helping the next generation launch in the way that they want them to launch. When we look then down to the working poor, and even more than that, those who are out of the labor force and very poor... We see households that have long had to hold all earners inside the fold just to survive. And so when their kids want to leave, they may not be able to afford to let them go. And I found this when I was studying the working poor in my in my book on, on Harlem's low-wage workers, um, No Shame in My Game. Those were households in which young people often were desirous of leaving. Their parents tried to prevent them from doing so because they needed to keep all that Earning inside the household. When you've got only poor workers, you need all of them—your kids, the parents, everybody—in order for the household to survive. That was, of course, the pattern in the Great Depression for many American, millions of American households. If young people were able to find any work at all, they turned their pay packets over to their parents because the whole household depended on multiple workers to survive. So, like any other social phenomenon, it is definitely inflected by class.
2: This isn't a central part of your book, but you do touch on gender, the gender of the adult child and how that may make a difference in how they're perceived by their parents or how they interact with their parents.
1: I didn't see this as a heavily gendered story, to be honest. And that's partly because the expectations for education and for work for girls is pretty close to what it is for boys now. Sure, I really don't see that there's a huge difference in what parents are expecting of their kids. There may be, there are certainly differences in how easily parents are able to exact out of their sons the same kind of domestic help that that daughters provide. Daughters do seem to be more likely to recognize that they should do their own laundry, they should pick up out of themselves, they should help make dinner. They may. There may still be some gendered patterns around that. And when they come back home, there's often more complaints about boys relapsing into adolescent patterns of leaving their laundry all over the place or something but that's an over that that's sort of an extreme case for the most part. I really didn't see gendered patterns much at all because we've really changed in our expectations and and become closer to a gender neutral country in what we think the trajectories of young people will be. We are expecting daughters to get as much education as sons. We're expecting that they're going to work. And since they have similar,
2: similar, not only expectations, but the requirements being placed on them, we get very similar patterns in the accordion family. Did gender matter significantly in the other countries? Well, In all countries, men tend to stay home longer
1: because they're older when they marry. Women marry younger than men do. So there's a difference in all of them from that point of view. But I didn't find all that much of a gender difference in the actual patterns of behavior in households. I did see more anxiety around this in Italy with respect to men. There's more popular culture stigma attached to this and this whole so called cult of mommy small and a sense that, um, you know, boys are being coddled somehow in Italy. But I think this is really largely more of a, a kind of uh, media creation than, than what you actually see in households.
0: So the general picture between the books, you know, you offer a lot of nuance in talking about the different countries, but if you were just going to paint a simplified picture, could you say which countries adjusted the most easily to accordion Families and which has adjusted the most reluctantly?
1: Well, I would say the U.S. actually has had the easiest time with this as long as its young people are making tracks toward the kind of future that parents... Envision for them, then they seem pretty comfortable with this. In Italy, they're completely comfortable with it, but their government's not comfortable with it. Um, in Spain, it's perfectly fine inside the household, but there's a lot of anger about why this has happened, why, why this was necessary. And in Japan, it's by far the worst adaptation. There, it's something close to an apocalyptic interpretation of why this has happened and one that's very internally focused. So Japan is a country that has had more than 20 years of economic stagnation now, but you almost never hear parents in Japan talking about economic decline as the reason why their young people are at home. It's far more personalist, far more focused on the idea of a deviant generation and defective parenting, much more self-blaming and moralistic. So I would say of all the countries in my study, Japan is the one that's had the most trouble with this process and is least adapted and continues to define this as a truly deviant state.
2: And so maybe to wrap up, you talk about the differences between the Nordic countries and the rest of these countries and how the economic situation is similar the young people are having a hard time finding jobs in those countries as well, but this the state support is wildly different. Totally. So could you address that, and then are there any recommendations you have for policy in the United States based on your findings?
1: So let me start with the first point. The Nordic countries face very similar economic pressures. They, too, have been affected by globalization. They have very serious youth unemployment problems, but they don't have accordion families. And the reason is... The welfare state is so strongly developed in the Nordic countries that it, it supports youth independence in ways that none of the other countries I've studied does. They provide extensive support for young people in the labor market. They uh, offer very generous unemployment benefits, even for people who've never been employed. They have extremely generous higher education benefits. Basically, it's free going going to college is almost free. In the Nordic countries, they have an expansive rental sector and a lot of state public housing, which is available uh, at a very low cost. So in all of these different ways, the Nordic countries' social welfare policies support youth independence. They create, in a sense, a dependence of young people on the state, not on their families. The advantage of that is that there's really no constraint on young people becoming independent uh, in fact, it's very strange in the Nordic countries for young people to be at home after the age of 18. Really very strange. It's, it truly is a deviant circumstance in which that might ever happen because there's such expensive social support through the public welfare system. And it's not at all stigmatized to make use of these benefits. It's completely normative. Everyone does. So they have very, very high tax rates in those countries, but they spend the money in ways that support youth independence and higher education. What I found interesting about the Nordic countries was that many of our interviewees felt that they had actually gone overboard in the direction of that support, so much so that there was relatively little need across generations for a kind of social compact. And so there was a worry that maybe they drifted too far away from each other emotionally uh, because they don't need each other financially. And I found that quite fascinating. I went to the Nordic countries. Because I thought I was going to be in a place in which I was looking at the absence of the problem I was studying everywhere else. And that was true. But I found other problems I didn't expect. It was not nirvana. There was a lot of worry about people being too atomistic and not dependent enough across the generational boundaries. And a certain longing, from their point of view, for the kind of closeness that they see in the southern European countries. So I found that quite fascinating. Now, as to what this implies for social policy or where we ought to go, I mean, fundamentally, I think if we were in the U.S. more supportive of higher education, provided more opportunity uh, like the social democracies do across the board for people to reach their full potential in higher education, we would see less of a, a kind of accordion family structure persist the way it has. One of the things that's driving this persistence is student debt, the extraordinary expense involved in completing higher education, and you don't see that in the Nordic countries, and I think we would be much better off if as a country we recognize that this is a very powerful investment in the well-being and prosperity of the country, as well as uh, the potential independence of young people, because if they didn't have Thousands and thousands of dollars of debt, they would have more freedom to pursue greater autonomy. At the same time, I'm not a critic of the accordion family. I think that there is a role for families in supporting the succeeding generations. I don't think it should be as extreme as it is now because that implies tremendous inequality. After all, if, if I can afford to let my child be an intern for a year, to pile up experience that will help him become the kind of professional he'd like to be, that's wonderful, but my poor neighbor is not going to be able to do that, and that is unfair. So I would like to see more leveling of the playing field so that family wealth doesn't so strongly constrain or advantage young people. And that's really what the Nordic countries do. They intervene to level those differences in ways that enable young people to pursue what they're most talented at doing, and I and we're doing a lot less of that, and that's one of the reasons why the boundaries are hardening. Uh, the mobility boundaries are hardening, and family of origin is becoming far more predictive of where people end up in their adult lives than, than I think it ought to be. So that would be my prescription.
2: But in the absence of, of any changes as far as student debt, you do see these accordion families persisting.
1: I do. I can't see how... I mean, they will... Diminished to some degree if we come out of this economic downturn and we have very robust employment and rising wages, but I don't think they're going to go away because the forces that are pushing them are much greater than that, I think. In particular, the demand for ever more education, the breakdown in our whole financing system for higher education, and the demand for more experience basically unpaid experience if people are going to find their way into the professions. I just think those are really the main drivers in the formation of accordion families here, and I don't see that going away, even if we did enter a more prosperous period, which
0: I hope we will. What are you planning to write about next? Uh
1: Well, I'm working on two books in my spare time, which is not voluminous because I'm a dean, and I have a 24-7 job running my part of a university. But in the middle of the night, <laughs> I get to do my homework, <laughs> I'm working on a book on South Africa, which is about the, the generation that came of age under a democracy in South Africa. Next year, oh, I should say in 2014, is the 20th anniversary of the first real free election in South Africa. And I'm hoping this book will come out on that anniversary because I think there will be a lot of thinking going on about what the country has accomplished in those 20 years. And so the focus of that book are people who are now in their early 30s and who for whom apartheid was a memory, a childhood memory, and most of their young adult lives have been spent in a democratic country. And I'm doing that collaboratively with a colleague at the University of Cape Town. And then I'm working on another book, which is back to my U.S. material, It's really about people who graduated from low-performing high schools, but graduated, what happens to them in the labor market. And in particular, this is turning out to focus much more on why the U.S. abandoned the kind of vocational education that has been so successful in Germany, because I think that was a mistake. And I'm looking to try and argue that case by studying what happened to young people who came through low-performing high schools in New York and And the ones that went to true, the the last two really high-performing vocational high schools did quite well. And that that turned my interest toward sort of the U.S. training system for people in the high school age group. So that's going to be called uh, learning to labor (laughs) in the new working class.
0: Hmm. <clears throat> Sounds interesting. Very interesting. Great. Well, hopefully we will have you back on the podcast
2: then in a couple of years I would to love talk about it. <laughs> Thanks Thank so much. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, take care.
0: That's all for this episode of Office Hours. See you soon.